going to dive in today to our message, and then we'll close today's service in response uh, with some worship. Uh, but we are in the middle of a series called Omega, which is a study on the book of Revelation and the end times, okay? Now, we began this here uh, in the uh, fall or the, yeah, the, the autumn, fall, whatever you want to call it, uh, season of last year. We put a pause on it for a couple weeks of Christmas, and then last week we launched off the year in 2021, uh, at, but now we're, or last week, so we're going to dive into the text today. Uh, going into Omega, study on the book of Revelation in the end times. Now, where we left off, we actually left off in the middle of a letter written to the church of Thyatira. We didn't completely finish our conversation with that, so we're going to go back and recap a little bit and cover our conversation on the letter to the church in Thyatira. So if you have your Bibles with you today, if you would go ahead and pull those out, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number two, we're gonna start reading in verse number 18. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse number 18. In addition to turning there in your Bibles, I'm gonna ask if you would please rise and stand in honor of God's word for our initial and primary reading of it today. And to the church And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. All right, as we dive into this today, let's go ahead and take a few minutes to catch up. As we've been following the letters to the churches in Asia Minor, these are literal physical churches that existed during the time frame that the book of Revelation is being written by the Apostle John But these letters are circular in nature, which means they apply where the shoe fits. And they're also prophetic in nature, which means they apply to churches of all generations, of all ages. All of these letters seem to find a consistent format. Last time we visited this, about a month ago, you can catch the recording online uh, if you need to catch up. But we covered the correspondent, the church, the city, the commendation, 
and we spent a deal of time addressing the concern. Thyatira was doing some things well, but there was also an internal false prophetess uh, that was seducing God's people into idolatry and sexual immorality, and it was a mess. So we spent some time talking about the fact that Christianity is not tolerant of evil, but it must be intolerant of evil and those who subject themselves to it. So I want to go back to the concern, and I want to address an additional topic of concern with the church in Thyatira and how it can apply to us today. And what I want to focus on is starting in verse number 20. The Lord Jesus said this, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service, servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Notice it only mentions one thing that she refuses to repent of. It appears by the omission of idolatry, that she actually repented of the idolatry. But it goes on to say, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Jesus is not messing around. He never does. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In other words, I will use you as an example of what not to do. I want to talk specifically about the idea that Christ gave this woman that he's referring to as Jezebel time to repent. Amen. Now, most likely what is meant by this, and this is how Jesus handles repentance. Individual and private, if he addresses an individual, a private sin, something in your life, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He seeks to draw you into repentance and confession to the Lord, as well as to seek accountability to help you overcome. But then there are outward public sins, sins that uh, 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 compromise the integrity and the, the, the unity of the body. And the Lord Jesus gave us very specific instructions on how to handle these types of situations with outward sin and with conflict. And it's in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse number 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, here comes the, woo, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So if you go to the Greek and you really break down what that word means, or what that, that verse means, it means that you have an express responsibility to permit what heaven permits and forbid what heaven forbids. Okay? So Jesus gives us four steps in dealing with outward sin and conflict. Number one, a private 
conversation between the two people that are directly involved with the situation, the sin, the conflict. That's step one. I'm a firm believer that if this step would just happen, 95% of conflict would be resolved. Because when two regenerate, converted believers that are humble in heart come together and seek to learn from each other's perspectives, I believe most things are resolved. There are times it takes more than that. And that's why we go to step two, a corporate conversation involving elders or witnesses giving that person or that person's a second opportunity to repent. If that doesn't work, we are called to a third step, a church-wide conversation addressing the unrepentant sinner or sinners, giving that person one last chance to repent. And if they don't, we're called to excommunicate. I'm just the messenger of the word. I didn't write the rules. The Lord Jesus did. Okay, this person is not shown to bear the fruit of, an unconver- or of a converted believer. The fruit of a converted believer will be persistent obedience. And if the believer has been shown in the text where they are sinning and they refuse to repent, they're not showing they're a brother or sister in Christ because a regenerated, converted, true, genuine believer will repent. So because of that, they cannot be called a brother or sister or be considered part of the body. That doesn't mean they can't attend church. Unsaved people attend church all the time. It also doesn't mean that you treat them like garbage. They need to be evangelized to. It's clear that the gospel has not gripped their hearts and truly converted them. They need to be evangelized to. So it's not that you get rid of them in your life. It's that you now approach them differently. Now, instead of considering them a brother and talking to them like a brother, now you evangelize to them as if they're lost. Here's the reality. Sometimes people have to to allow the process of sin, the life cycle of sin to take course before they'll hit rock bottom and repent. It's just true. I mean, look at, internalize this and look at your own life. I I know that's the case for me. There are times whenever I've had to hit rock bottom with a certain area of my life or in times and seasons of my life before I'd finally get my act together and repent, right? And sometimes sin has to run its course. There's, if you think that a private conversation, a public conversation, a church-wide conversation sounds harsh, what's even more harsh is allowing sin to run its course because it brings death. And when you let sin give birth to more and more death, how many times have you looked back and said, man, I, just, I wish I would have listened to so-and-so. I wouldn't be in the mess I'm in right now. Trust me, allowing sin to run its course is the latchest effort to bring a brother or sister or someone who is claiming to be but isn't to repentance or to find the gospel. So it's clear here that Thyatira likely did three of the four steps. Because Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. And this is how Jesus gives people a chance to repent. He uses the body. He uses the body. He doesn't send an angel down. He doesn't send some sort. He uses the body to help people repent. So likely Thyatira did three of the four steps, but they would not excommunicate her. This is how they tolerated her. 
Notice that she does repent, but it's half repentance. Revelation 2.21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay? So apparently she repented of her idolatry. It's not listed here. But no repentance for the sexual immorality. Partial repentance is not repentance. Okay? Those who belong to Christ repent of their sins. They turn away. That's the fruit of a true genuine believer. Jezebel, along with a few of her followers, refused to repent, and we see Jesus' response of judgment declared over them. It's not good. 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the, ch- all the churches will know, I'm going to make an example out of you, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Divine judgment is coming to Jezebel and her children. Who are her children? Well, anybody that fell for her deception and refuses to repent after the deception is addressed proves they are not children of God. They're rather children of Jezebel. And Jezebel is a child of Satan, so they're children of Satan. And as we look at historical records, it's with great sadness that this church in Thyatira failed to respond to the call of Jesus to repent. According to historical records, the church in Thyatira fell into what's called the Montanist heresy, a movement led by a false prophet who claimed supernatural revelation that was extracurricular or beyond the scriptures. They fell into the heresy and the church completely disappeared by the end of the second century. Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Now, then, Christ goes on to say, verse 23, I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So judgment is directly attached to our works. Those who are innocent will will not be punished with those who are guilty. Romans 2, 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Works have always been the basis and the foundation for divine judgment, but that does not mean that salvation comes by works. Ephesians chapter 2, starting of verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So divine judgment comes to works, is based off of works, but salvation doesn't happen because of works. James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you Faith, my faith by my works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ saves us for good works, he doesn't save us by good works. It is the grace of God in response to our faith in him that saves us, but then he saves us for good works that he has positioned since the beginning of time that we should walk in to show the glory of God on the earth. But those works do not save us, but those works are the items by which we are judged by. Thankfully for Christians, 
we're judged by our good works. So we will receive rewards for the good things that we've been obedient to. Christ will give us eternal rewards in heaven because the sin has been paid for and there's no due penalty to us because Christ bore it on the cross. So when we stand before Christ, it will be, I will render unto you rewards for your faithfulness. There will be no divine judgment. But for those who stand without faith, their sin will be upon them, and their works of evil and deeds will be counted to them, and the result will be death. So this presents two interesting questions for us to ponder. These are hard questions, but I really want you to internalize them and think about them. Do you confront sin when you see it? Okay? When you see a brother or sister struggling or in sin, do you say anything? Now, obviously, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do this. Let me illustrate to you a wrong way. No relationship. If you walk up to someone and you have no relationship with them, are they actually going to listen to what you say, or they're going to be defensive and push you away? Now, there may be rare times when you just feel overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that he has asked you to do this. Okay, be obedient in that situation. But at the end of the day, when there's no relationship, people don't even think you care about them. It's not going to go well. When it's done with condemnation, okay, when it's done with condemnation, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, before you go and approach someone, take the plank out of your own eye instead of looking for the speck in your brother's eye. The whole point there is not that at some point you'll never have to help a brother or sister in their moment of weakness or sin. It's that when you do, consider how much you have been forgiven. Because then you won't approach them with condemnation, you'll approach them with care and humility. Maybe even this is something you've struggled with before, and you can come with a testimony of how Jesus helped you overcome it. Wrong way, sharp tone. How many of you, don't raise your hand, have a naturally sharp tone that you come across sharply in everything you do? The Lord may have to help you develop a pastoral soft tone for addressing these situations, okay? Pridefully. Addressing someone as if you, ha- you are better or you have nothing wrong with you. Pridefully, it's the wrong way to do it. In front of people. How many of you want to have your sin confronted in front of people? Nope. No one. No one at all. No one. You do it in private. Insinuate that their character is maligned. Okay, let me give you an example. You walk up to someone and say, you just lied. You walk up to someone in a different scenario and you say, you are a liar. Two different things, right? One, you're characterizing a person by their action. The other, you're simply stating that they fell short of their character. Isn't it much easier to say, hey, I know you're better than this. I know that by character, that by lying, you're acting below your character. 
And I know you're better than that, and I want to help you see that so, we, so that you can walk in the character that the Lord Jesus has given you. Isn't that far better than saying, you're a liar? Now you're characterizing that person. You're personifying their fault and, make, and, and wrapping it up in who they are as a person. So there's a right way of doing saying, with a relationship. That's why the body is so important. We develop relationships with each other. We give, we give each other permission to speak into each other's life. Done in humility. You place yourself lower than them when you approach them. Now, look, I want to talk to you about something that's really hard, but I want to let you know before we start this conversation, I suck too. <laughs> like, I, I'm not doing well at these things too, but I want to talk to you. Pastoral soft tone. Watch your body language. Watch how you set. Are you folding your arms? Are you crossing your legs? Are you slouching? Watch your body language. Done with edification. I'm not here to slam you. I'm here to point out something that's holding you back because we're gonna build you up. And if you let go of this thing that's holding you back, you're gonna be built up. See how, much, see how different that is? I'm not trying to point out the bad in your life. I'm trying to point out something that's holding you back from what the Lord wants to do. In private, show concern for them. This isn't about me trying to point out something. I'm concerned for you. Encourage that their character is better than their fruit. This is an essential part of being in the body. It's really hard to do. We live in a culture that's very offendable, very sensitive. You can't tell me what to do. But the Lord Jesus has set up the body so that we watch out for each other. You see, the enemy isn't your brother and sister sitting across the room or sitting next to you. It's sin. It's the devil. We have a common enemy, and it's not each other. He wants to deceive us into making us think it's each other. It ain't each other. It's sin. And we got to have our backs, have each other's backs against this common enemy. Okay? We take things too personally. Too personally. Everything's a character shot. Everything's an attack on me. This is part of the victim mentality that we talked about last week that we need to let down. We're not the victim. Jesus became the victim on our behalf. We're the villain. We knowingly and willingly perpetrated a rebellion against God. We're the villain, not the victim. So here's the other question. Not just do you confront him, but how do you respond when you're confronted? Are you the person that gets offended? Do you get mad? Do you get defensive? Uh, do you, are you too busy trying to figure out how not to get caught? Or do you accept it with a humble and contrite heart, assuming the best intentions out of your brother and sister in Christ that they are simply doing their best? They may have not have done it perfectly, but they're doing their best to keep watch over your soul. It's never easy to have sin confronted. Never. But your response to the confrontation will either display the fruits of the Holy Spirit or the fruits of the devil, or the fruits of your flesh is another way to put it. Let me give you some examples of when people were called out in the Bible. God called out the devil for his pride. What did he do? He started a war in heaven. He got so defensive that what he did is he went and rounded up a third of the angels to get on his side, and then they caused a war in heaven. 
How many times has confrontation like this happened and our response has been, well, let me go gossip to all my friends, get them to take my side of the story, and then we're going to cause a little uh, cold war inside of the body because you're on this person's side and you're on this person's side and we're all going to secretly hate each other behind the scenes. How many times has that happened? Okay, Jesus, uh, Jesus called out Judas Iscariot. He called out Judas Iscariot for his betrayal. What did Judas Iscariot do? He went and he put the sin that he had committed on himself. And he killed himself because of the grief. He didn't have faith in the cross. He didn't look and say, my sin is big, but the cross is bigger. And then put his sin on the cross and trust in Jesus. He put the sin on himself because he had no faith in Jesus. And he went and killed himself because the grief of the sin being upon him. Jesus called out Simon Peter. What did Peter do? He wept because he was sorrowful for his sin. And when he saw it for what it was, he saw how bad. It wasn't simply a denying who Jesus was. It was a complete betrayal. It was a complete denouncement of everything that he had ever said that he was gonna stand on. He said he would die for that man. And when it came down to it, and he was forced with a decision to do so, he denied him three times and cussed in the process. I just like throwing that in because it's Peter. But he wept. All Jesus had to do was give him the dad look from across the room. And he lost, he lost it. But the difference with Peter was he did not put the sin on himself like Judas did. He put the sin on the cross. He had faith that the cross was big enough to handle his betrayal. That the blood of Jesus was powerful enough to wipe his sins away. And in months, he was standing before thousands of people on the day of Pentecost, preaching sermons, spirit-filled, and thousands of people were getting saved. What are you going to do? When your sin is confronted, are you going to go create a war in the church as the devil did in heaven? Are you going to put the sin on you and build, beat yourself up and have all these identity issues and this grief and this anxiety and this depression because you're wearing your own sin because you don't have enough faith that the cross will carry and, and wipe away your sin for good? Or will you be like Peter and weep at the altar for your brokenness, but then put the sin on the cross and walk in faithfulness to what God has for you? The difference is the devil was thrown down, Judas Iscariot hung himself, and Peter walked in Jesus' promises. Your choice. Your choice. Most of us, to be honest, we don't know how to confront. We don't know how to be confronted because we don't do it that much. We're too sensitive. We're too sensitive. We're afraid that if we approach a brother or sister, they're not going to like us anymore and we're afraid of being approached because we don't want people getting in our lives. But that's an essential part of the body, though. What's terrifically difficult about this as a pastor is if your church actually looks like a biblical church where people are doing what they're supposed to do and watching out for each other, nobody wants to go to that church. They want to hide in the back row where uh, sometimes I want to go where nobody knows my name. And they don't even know I came. Do, do, do. 
It's not the church's fault, but there's an environment where you get to slip in, you get to slip out. You might as well just go watch a show somewhere. But a body doesn't act like that. The church doesn't act like that. We're a family. Okay? It's one of the reasons why we do house churches. You know, you don't slip in the back and you slip out. You, you come and you're part of the body. You contribute. You're part of the conversation. And you, you, you bear each other's burdens. You know, people are so scared to put themselves out there. And I get it, man. There's some, there's some jokers out there that will sometimes use that against you. It's happened to me over and over and over again. But you know what I got to keep doing? I got to keep putting myself out there. Because there's people out there that need to know my testimony, that need the healing, that, 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 that what Jesus did for my life can provide them. And just because there's a couple of jokers that decided to use that against me, pfft, forgive that. The amount of people that could be impacted by my testimony and me being vulnerable is much larger than the two jokers running their mouth about taking stuff in my life and turning it against me. Who cares? I pray for them too. I pray for them too because the Lord is revealing something in their hearts when they do that, just like the people in your life, okay? This is sometimes why people run from community, run from environments where you can't really hide. But this is nothing to run away from. This is something to run to. Not every conversation around the dinner table is gonna feel good. Sometimes you gotta talk about the hard things. And here's the thing, at the end of the day, it's far better to fall into the, the hands of human accountability than face God over unrepented sin or allow sin to run its course in your life. Wouldn't you much rather fall into the hands of a human accountability, as hard as that is? All right, let's move forward to the command, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Hold, only hold fast what you have until I come. Now, Jesus addresses the people that are holding on. What are they holding on to? The gospel. They're living out the gospel. Part of the responsibility of living out the gospel creates a burden. The burden of resisting the false teachings of Jezebel, the burden of dealing with false believers, pretending they're real believers, trying to infiltrate the church with lies, facing the persecutions and the sufferings that come from living in that area for being Christians, just in general, it comes with trials. It is a burden to deal with false teachings and false teachers. It's not fun. It's not fun to confront sin. It's not fun to call out Jezebels and deal with them. It is not fun to address things that aren't right. It is a burden, but it is required by the scriptures. Verse 22, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, notice it calls the teachings of Jezebel the deep things of Satan. Jesus doesn't hold back here. He never does. Jesus isn't playing around with this deception. He's not playing games. He's not taking it lightly. He leaves no room for any tolerance of it at all. He calls it for what it is. It's satanic. Now, people like to say, well, this is Christ-like. Or they like to portray what they think Christ-likeness looks like. But this is Christ-likeness. It's not just holding babies and kissing puppies. Or maybe the reverse order. 
depends on who you are, I guess. Christ-likeness is calling evil satanic and calling truth holy. So in the council, verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this text, two very, very big promises for the ones that will hold on until the end. Promise number one, authority over the nations. Now, this promise comes right out of the psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a promise to the Lord Jesus, but he extends this promise that he, Christ now lets us rule the nations with him, with the authority that the Father has given him. This is a participation with authority in the kingdom of God. Think about this and how amazing this is. To those who persevere, you're beat up, you're pushed around, you're persecuted, you remain faithful, even when it's not popular, you will rule the nations with Christ. Amen. One guy gets it. <laughs> Some of y'all are just excited to be in control of the lunch menu at work. But you can't read this text about being able to rule the nations with Christ someday and get excited. Like, we get to rule the nations with Christ. I like being in control. I like... <laughs> Therapy session's beginning right now. I like being in control. Christ says, I've been given all these things. You will rule with me. <laughs> it's just so cool. Those that are rebels will be destroyed. Christ is going to delegate his authority to the faithful to rule with him. Come on, amen. Man, it's so cool. Now, the second promise he gives is that he will give us the morning star. Okay? Now, this isn't the, the pretty star in the sky when you wake up in the morning. The morning star is who? Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Christ is the morning star. He promises himself and the fullness of himself. And he will share, he will share his glory. The glory of the Son of God will be accessible and shared with us. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We have no idea right now what all entails in that, but someday we're going to look at Christ face to face. And for those of you who are faithful, who cling to the cross, who put your sins on the cross, who hold true to the gospel, no matter what this world does, no matter what this world throws at you, no matter the Jezebels that come into your life, no matter all the followers of Jezebel and what they have to say, but you hold true to the gospel. And at the end, when you stare Christ face to face, you will rule with him in the nations and the fullness of 
of the Son of God and His glory will be available to you to share in. Is that not worth the garbage and the trials and the struggles that we deal with in this short lifetime? Is it not worth all of that? Uh, In my opinion, absolutely is. So let's wrap up this intense letter to this church. Here's the three things that I want us to pull from it. Number one, this letter reveals the seriousness of practicing and tolerating sin. Sin, we talked about this back in the summer. Sin is much worse than what we think. Even the small little medial sins that we excuse off as not being much of a big deal, sin is a much, much bigger deal than what we think. Okay? So practicing sin, tolerating sin, it's not Christ-like to do uh, each other. doesn't mean that we won't mess up. It doesn't mean that, brothers, we won't mess up in this area, but we do our best with the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in truth. Number two, a mark of a true Christian is Persistent obedience. This is hard. Obedience is easy for short seasons. It's easy to recommit yourself. It's a new year. I'm going to get back in church. I'm going to do all these things. Uh, uh, Medial situational obedience is easy. We all do that. You know, I'm going to get in the gym, and, and then a week later, you're not. Persistent obedience, that is a different thing. Holding true to your commitment to Christ at all times, in all seasons, even when you're out of energy, and you're tired, okay? Not situational obedience. Number three, despite the problems, Christ promises eternal reign for the faithful. Man, man, come, like, like, come on, guys. This, this is our hope. Listen, I'm telling you, I'd follow Christ even if he didn't promise these things. Even if all he gave me was escape from the eternal punishment of my sin, I'd still follow him. But not only does he do that, he doesn't want to, he just doesn't want to like pull in all of us and say, okay, I saved you. Now, you know, run through all of your houses in heaven. I'm done with you now. He says, I want you to be a part of the kingdom and what I'm doing. I've now shared my inheritance with you. I've now shared my glory with you. I now adopt you into my family. You're a part of me. I and you, you and me. And now we get this wonderful gift. And so many refuse it. So many refuse it. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for your word. I thank you for your promises. I thank you for all these things that you have, that you have shown us in your word, God. I pray that, that all of us in this room, that we would be uh, better, more led by the Spirit to confront when we've missed the mark that we would confront it in our own lives first, that we would confront it in our brothers and sisters to watch over them and keep be as watchmen to watch over their back uh, when the enemy comes. That, Father, we ourselves, that if we are confronted, that we would, do, we would receive it with a heart of gentleness that, and humility, that we would allow the Lord to transform our heart, that we would use it as a tool, not a weapon, uh, to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. It would, you would teach us as a body to walk in this way because you said that the world will know who you are by how we love each other, and watching each other's backs is how we love each other. That's one of the ways. 
So, Father, teach us to do that, Lord. Our culture is sensitive and, and teaches us to do the exact opposite, to seclude yourself, to isolate yourselves, to, to, to don't, you know, create some fictitious version of your life and put it on social media. But, but we know, Lord, that, that the more that we allow the body to help us carry our burdens, the more fruit we see. We see that in house churches all the time, people sharing their lives and putting things on the line, and now an entire group of people sharing that burden with them, joining with them in prayer, and walking with them through their challenges, and it's just beautiful to see how you have designed biblical community, and we ask you, God, to help us walk in that. Father, I pray right now that you would soften hearts to listen to my call for the gospel, and that those who need to respond and are ready would do so. Church, I want to ask you right now, and anybody that's in the room, if you've not given your life fully to Christ and you would like to do so, Maybe you've walked, you, you were serving him at one time, you backslidden, you want to return to Christ, and today, uh, before the body, you would just like to say, I want to recommit to Jesus, or I want to, I want to follow Christ. And if that's you, just raise up your hand. We just want to pray for you right where you're at. We're not going to make you feel awkward. We're not going to call you out. We just want to join with you and pray for you today. Raise your hand today and say, I want to serve the Lord. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior he died on the cross and substitute for you on your. Uh, uh, he died for you on the cross and substitute in place of you and taking the penalty of sin and the wrath of God, so that you might be saved. Thank you. I assume by a show of no hands that means that everybody has either received the gospel and it feels secure in that, or um, you're not quite ready to, and that's okay too. I pray that the Lord continues to reveal Himself to you. Uh, join with me in a final prayer before we worship, Father, as we worship you today. I pray, God, that we do so in spirit and truth. I pray, Father, that our worship is a sweet fragrance to you that pleases you, that it's not about us, that it's not about us singing songs that make us feel good, but it's about, it's about uh, using our voices to proclaim the name of God and to lift you up in your glory on the earth. Father, would you help us today to honor you in that and to, if there's anything in our hearts that needs to be cleansed, that you would reveal that and that you would sanctify us in your word. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Guys, if you're not in a house church, please get in one. Leanne, if you don't mind throwing up the number real quick, 417-815-5775, or you can come talk to one of our staff or me after service. These house churches are really, really important. They're growing. They're, the people are coming to house churches that, that don't go to a corporate church. That people are sharing life. So if you, uh, I encourage you, if you're not in a house church, you need to get in one today. Um, we, we will talk to you. We will uh, set you up to meet the leader before you, join, before you test it out. That way you know somebody before you walk into the gathering and you're like the new guy. Uh, or the new girl. So we will set it up for you so it's a soft transition and that we do it at your pace, at your rate, so you're not uncomfortable. I understand all those things. So text us today. All you have to do, you don't have to text any number or code. Just just text that number and just tell us, I'd like to join a house church and we'll reach out to you this week and we'll get that process started. Absolutely nothing to be nervous about. These are great meetings. Uh, in, in fact, a lot of people like house churches uh, and their leaders far better than they like me. So uh, it, it's a great time to gather together as a community, but we want you to get in the house church if you at all possibly can. Uh, we love you. Let's worship the Lord together.